Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty, and this is Talking Design, brought to you by RMIT University in Melbourne. And I've got a very special person with me this morning. It's Joanna Preston from Preston's Lie, who design and also manufacture their own shoes. And I've been following um, Joanne Preston and her partner, um, life and business partner, Peter Zly, um, for many, many years. And um, their work's been uh, included in a number of important exhibitions, the National Gallery of Victoria. Shoes is a very interesting area to get into, Joanna. And it sure is. <laughs> 15, nine, mid-90s, you started um, the business, yep. Preston's Lie Shoes. Why shoes to begin with? It was just an obsession of mine from when I was really, really young, when I was a little, little girl. <clears throat> and I'd been given beautiful shoes. I was the first grandchild on one side of the family and my grandparents travelled and my mum's younger brothers travelled and they brought back shoes, strangely. So I had little gold slippers with glass beads that came from Hong Kong or Singapore and I had handmade um, American Indian beaded moccasins that one of my uncles had brought back. Um, and right through my childhood, just shoes were just an obsession and I don't really know why, mm. but they just were. And um, I think to top it all off, I also had very, very difficult feet to fit, which my children have managed to inherit from me. So really, really big feet and really, really narrow. And so, you couldn't find anything. Well, no, and also you see my mum had terrible, terrible bunions, like some of the worst bunions I've ever seen. I've seen a lot of feet. Mm. Um, and so she knew how important it was to fit a child's feet in really good, properly fitted shoes. So for her, it was always about the fit over fashion. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe from my childhood, I was deprived of, you know, what yeah. the other kids always wanted, you know, always had. I never had, you know, I had to have the shoes that were sensible and fitted. So yeah, I had to have the sort of sensible navy so, blue lace-ups. Joan, at what point did you decide, I think there's a market for bespoke shoes in Melbourne? I didn't, it wasn't even a process where I sort of went down that. It was more a process. I, I was, um, I, I was studying an arts degree at Melbourne University and I just hated it. And I think that when I went to school, if you were generally sort of fairly smart, that's what you did. If you didn't want to be a lawyer or whatever, you, you had to go to, you know, university and you had to do an arts degree. Whereas I think now kids at school have a much broader sort of professional scope. And I think that, um, things, that when I was a teenager weren't seen as valid careers are now seen as very exciting, you know, creative things to do. So I was at Melbourne University just really not enjoying it um, and so I took a year off and um, in the meantime I was working part-time jobs here, there and everywhere and I was just saving up all my money and spending it on shoes. And um, by this stage I was actually going in a relationship with Peter and um, I was complaining about what I could get and he said, well, why don't you just learn? And so being young and just... How old being, were you at the time? I think I was probably 20. Um, I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. And it just seemed to make sense. I mean, right through my high school years, I'd always, you know, when I wasn't sort of studying, I was making clothes and making things. And I had actually tried to make some shoes when I was 16. That didn't work, but, but I had a go. Making shoes is quite different from making a dress. Oh, yeah. The technology, the machinery. Yeah. You don't just... Get up and the, it's extremely physical, the physicality of it. 
It's a Can really. Can you tell me about that? Um, well, once you get working with leather, leather is um, there are certain limitations with leather. You can't pin things together. You have to glue them together. You've, you know, like you can't sew them and then unpick them because you have holes. So you've got to be really precise, and you've got to um, make. Um, thin the leather out in certain ways, so you've got to have really good knife skills. Like so, it's actually um, it's it's very very complicated. So where um, did you where did you start your training in? So I started um, at there was a course which was at Collingwood TAFE, which is gone now. It's now part of RMIT. Uh, yeah, then it, then it shifted to. Melbourne College of Textiles, which is where they did wool classing and saddlery and that sort of thing. Um, and I think maybe stuff with wheat and sort of farming type yeah. things. That was in Pasco Vale. And now that course has been absorbed into RMIT in Brunswick. Yeah. Um, and the course that I did was an, started doing was an orthopaedic and bespoke um, footwear course. Um, and, I mean, when, it, when I started in Collingwood, still Collingwood was a, just a... There were little shoe factories everywhere. The, Melbourne was an enormous shoe yeah. manufacturing um, centre in the world um, up until the 70s, I think, when the governments decided to sort of basically start phasing out manufacturing. Yeah. Um, so all those apartments now that are built down there, all those warehouse apartments, practically all of those were shoe, little shoemaking businesses or, or componentry or knife manufacture, manufacturers. So you, you went to... There was a, a man in Adelaide you... Yeah, from. so I was I was frustrated by what I was learning at that course. Um, it was still really geared towards sending people into factories, so you did learn a little bit about how to measure people up, but you weren't really sort of taught anything about design. It was very, very, very basic. Um... And so while I was there, I found out about a master shoemaker whose name was George Koleff, and he lived in Adelaide, and he was a Bulgarian man. He had studied for seven years to become a master shoemaker, seven, uh, six days a week. Started off in the 30s, I think. Started off, his first job was straightening tax. So, I mean, sort of economies of scale that just don't exist anymore. Mm. Like when, when, when you thread a sewing machine to change a colour, we just tie a knot and pull it through. He wouldn't let us do that because it was a waste of thread. Whereas yeah. for us, time is money, you know. So so for them back then, you know, like straightening tax was, you know, a sort of, yeah. So nice. he's, yeah. But it was also something you had to do economically for a business to survive. Just completely different sort and, of And you bought his world. machinery? No, I didn't, no, I didn't buy his machinery. I actually learnt from him how to do practically everything. Everything by hand. It was a treadle sewing machine um, to um, get the edge of a sole looking really nice. You'd start with a rasp, a special hand rasp, and then from there you'd go to a piece of glass which you cut this special way that would give one edge a sharp edge, and you'd slice, you'd scrape that over the um, edge of the sole, and that would take the rasp. Um, marks off and then you'd go to a heavier piece of sandpaper and then a fine piece of sandpaper so it was like really just yes yeah. so I learned how to do everything the only machines he had was a little sort of um, finishing machine which at that stage I didn't use right. and treadle sewing machines and then well then you bought machinery somewhere else Sta I started sort collecting. of accumulating collecting machines that's been something that's been ongoing over the entire career of our business and um, is something that is still ongoing there are still things that I'd like to have in my workshop even just for sampling. So, so, Joanna, what was your first pair of shoes that you made that you thought, I've actually got more than a machinery, piece of machinery, I've actually got a product? Oh, well, the first pair of shoes that I made, so I made, we made sort of, we whipped up some really terrible shoes in that course at um, Collingwood Tafe, <laughs> like just shocking, they were just horrible. Um, 
And um, I think, like, I gave them to a couple of friends just because they thought it was just crazy. So I think somebody's got a somebody got a couple of pairs of them. They were just shocking, shocking shoes. Um, so the first real pair of shoes that I made was with George Coleff, and they were um a um sort of nineteen thirty style brogue with about an inch heel. Um, they were for me, and they were black, and they had um, white leather showing through the holes of the brogue, and they were Goodyear welted by hand, which is um, a really, really complicated process to do. Um, and they had leather stiffeners and leather toe puffs and leather stacked here, which I stacked myself. Took and, a week um, to make? Took two weeks. Wow. Yeah, and and the stitching from the, uh, the, the Goodyear welted, um, process is really complicated because you stitch a, a piece of leather to the insole and the upper, mm-hmm. which is one method of stitching, and then um, you treat that and then you put the sole and then you actually cut a groove and mm-hmm. stitch down through that piece of leather into the sole. Mm-hmm. So there's a few factories that can still do that sort of work, but not many. It's a really old-fashioned technique, but it's a really the best shoe is a Goodyear welter. So um, <clears throat> one of your big success stories in design was the Vatican clog. Yes. which was modelled on a 16th century yes. pope who yeah. wore clogs. Well, actually, it's it's actually really modelled on a traditional pope's shoe full stop. They were very, very, very simple red shoes. And I think that it also comes back... The redness is about sumptuary laws and all that sort of thing, like certain classes of people were allowed to wear certain colours and other people weren't. So the traditional pope's shoe is a red, very simple, almost like a pump the Europeans call them. I suppose mm. we call them a court shoe, court mm. shoe here. Um, very, very, very simple. And if you see the Pope, he still wears shoes like similar. But mm. we really transformed it. We put an internal component in it and we sort of like morphed it, I suppose, with a clog. There are a lot of shoes on the market at the moment that, um, you know, you kind of wonder how women stand up all day in these very high stiletto shoes. And people say, oh, but, you know, you don't understand. You know, women love that. But you very rarely do shoes that are uncomfortable. We or... Look, I mean, we do our absolute best. We do we do always do some really high heels in every collection and there'll always be one of those particular ones that's a winner that sells really well that people buy a lot of and really love. But within that, we do our best to make a really high shoe as comfortable as it can possibly be, knowing that when you do that to a foot... If you're in that angle all day, there's a point where your back does start to hurt, but hopefully the bottom of your soles don't, doesn't burn as well. And so it's really for us about creating a balance. Um, a lot of it's to do with where the heel is. So often there's certain sort of periods in fashion where, you know, the heels will be kicked right back to the very back of the shoe and they're never as comfortable as when the heel... Like that sort of classic Marilyn Monroe type of um, stiletto where they look a bit lower because when you put the heel at the very back of the shoe, you gain extra, they look higher, Um, they look more extreme. But when a heel is sort of kicked or curved in so that it's under the centre of your heel, then you've got the centre of balance working really well. So it's actually as comfortable as you can get a really high shoe. So, I mean, that's what we aim for. And we don't – we've done the odd – look, I think we've done one stiletto. You know, and that was because we were sort of pushed by people we were working with, you know, no, you have to do this. You ha-. And, and, and in a way, it's good to show people that you can do that, but it never sold. Um, whereas at the high heels we do now 
do sell and they can be very high, like 11 centimetres, which is about as high as you'd go. Um, But it's because they're stable, they're not wobbly, they're not teetery shoes. They're still sort of powerful shoes for powerful women. How do you tend to start a collection, Joanna? I mean, between you and Peter, how does the design process evolve? It's very, very organic. Um, I know because we're doing some sort of other design projects at the moment, um, you know, sort of collaborating with other people and um, it can be a very sort of rigid, you know, picture that you're given that you have to work to the picture, whereas we work, it's quite loose. We... uh, are constantly sort of collecting ideas and each of us separately, scraps of paper. Peter draws them, I write notes, like I'm sort of more sort mm. of, um, yeah, wordy about how... So it'll be a concept, little sketch and then little arrows and sort of notes about how I want mm. it to look. Um, and then in my head is really the idea of the shape that I want. So I suppose it also starts with the shapes. The last, which is a bit like a hat block, <clears throat> Um Everything in a shoe is about the shape of the last. The heel height is determined by the last shape, the toe shape. So so we'll start with a few last shapes and we and we tend to maybe introduce one new last a season and then work with other lasts that we've been developing over time. Um, and all those scrappy ideas get put on a pin board and then there's a time when we start sort of getting into the headspace of designing a collection and so, okay, these are some of the things I'm thinking about. And so the slowly but surely this, the bits of paper get shifted to the middle and sort of rearranged and rearranged. And then we'll sit down and have a proper look at it, spread it all out on the floor, look at what we've got, <clears throat> look at where we're doubling up, looking at look at what, okay, that's too similar to something we did last year, look, knowing that the collection needs to have a spread of flat shoes, medium heel shoes and high high shoes within that, doing something that's maybe extra glam and sort of full on and then doing something that's super casual and easy to wear and easy to sort of wear from... From morning to night. Yeah, and I mean, you you sort of looked at me then. It's like it's that's complicated, but yeah. that's sort of it's a bit that's quite natural to sort of see it that way because I think I've been doing it for such a long time, and because I've got quite a good relationship with my clients, even though now I've got the shop, I still feel like I've got that sort of intimate relationship with the people who wear the shoes. So I know that we need something for those women right. and something for these who, women. Who are your clients? <clears throat> who would you say is a typical client? Look, a typical client, and I think you'd find this across the board in Melbourne, in all the sort of boutique fashion, is an older woman. And I'm like probably from sort of 30 to 70, anywhere in in between that age group. Um, You find clients drop off when they have children. So they'll be, or they get married and have children and they drop off and you see them only at sales or as they used to sort of buy. And that's, you know, because obviously they've got other responsibilities. So so they're older women tend because they're independent by that stage they're independent financially they don't have to answer to anybody how they spend their money they're still working most of them um so they're career women they've got a lot of other stuff going on in their lives um and they don't want to look the same as everybody else so they're educated they read you know like good newspapers and good magazines and how close does the your designs have to work in with mainstream fashion or with fashion generally in terms of colour palette? Well, I mean, outlook, I mean, really, when it comes to our clientele, in terms of colour palette, palette, you're really looking at black, red, white, ivory, brown. 
Uh, maybe some sort of neutral greens, but that's like that, and that doesn't change from see, uh, maybe a sort of burgundy. So, you know, a variation of red, so and that doesn't change. That doesn't change at all from season to season. So, I mean, that gets quite frustrating. And every now and again, you know, we'll do something in orange. Or this season, we've got some really bright blue, royal blue coming through, and it's beautiful. And I know I can sell that blue. I know that mm. people will buy it, but it's still, I'm still, I think I'm in the headspace of my clients. So that's quite natural. Mm. Um. Who do you take inspiration from? You know, like, I always loved Vivian Westwood, and I love the fact that she started late in life, and she really just, you know, like, forged her own way, and so many people have followed her, and I love the fact that, you know, she went, she wore a see-through lace dress with nothing underneath to meet the Queen. I just, you know, like, I just think that's one of the best things I've ever seen. I suppose I've sort of got that little bit of a punk ethos in me, and I would like to be able to push things, boundaries further for myself in that way, I suppose. Like, so... I'm not somebody who wants to fit in. Um, so I suppose I like renegades. I like people who make their own way and do things. But I, I love that about Vivian Westwood. And I always love Gaultier too, love Gaultier. And in terms of shoes, I love the work that um, Costume Nationale do because I love the craftsmanship. Um, you know, I mean, some of it's a bit too black, and you know, but I think that... Um, I, you know, recently I was looking at some of their shoes and there were real elements of what they were doing recently that were elements that we had sort of toyed with in the past. And, um, yeah, so I think that they do really great shoes. Where, where do you see you and Peter going in the next few years? What, what are some of the projects you're, you mentioned you're working with artists? Or? Oh, no, we're actually, we're actually, because we, we actually had to make the decision a couple of years ago to take all our production offshore. So we make all our sampling still ourselves, but it, that, that was a really difficult decision to come to, but it's actually been one of the best things that we could have done because like making a pair of shoes and making samples and sampling things is a really beautiful thing to do. And I love the physicality of that. I love, you know, I love working with my tools and I love having my sharp knives but if you're trying to make you just you can't do it well look five years ago six years ago there was still a few old timers around that we could employ in our business and they came in and their work ethic was incredible and they'd work really hard and they knew what they were doing and but but they've gone they've retired or they've died and if you can get any of them to work for you you know they get sick or and they want to be only paid cash and Mm. it's just it's so and training people up is just so time-consuming. Um, I mean, we're in a position now where we're sort of thinking about maybe sort of doing some apprenticeships because we've got a bit more time because we're not manufacturing all the time. But it just got to the point where we just couldn't do it anymore. We were getting later and later and later with our deliveries because and that was to... just costing us money. Um, and I'd be up, you know, at sort of midnight at night gluing soles and, you know, and, and how do you design in that environment when you're working sort of 60, 70 hours a week just to just to Maybe. keep everything? Yeah, mm-hmm. you just can't do it. So we took our production offshore to a really, really small... Um, factory which is now in Jakarta in Indonesia we started in with a tiny factory that was everything was absolutely handmade in Bali now we're in Jakarta and we're in it's a really great factory though it's a very small factory and um, they get constantly approached by the big Italian labels like Prada and they Mm. say no because it's too big like hundreds of thousands of pairs of shoes a month Mm. yeah and well look we're really lucky to be working with them and so that's freed us up to have some time to work on some product development for some bigger labels you know so um yeah just Mm. it's sort of another side of things but it's a really interesting it's i suppose it gets back to that how do we design like that you know the way they work is just so different the way we work is so organic so the pictures come together and then we tape up the last and we play and we draw on the last we get something that we'd like and And then then we we make it yeah then we make it up make up a mock-up 
get some sort of sense of what we want to do with heels, but the process is just incredibly organic. It's not. It's it's like people, I suppose, who design garments on the on the mannequin. They don't sort of you know. It's a very loose. You know, and it's about the folds and you know about what the fabric's going to do. So yeah, it's a really different process to the way a lot of designers work. Joanna, if I asked you in 1995, do you think you'd still be making shoes in 2011? What would you say? I would, if, if you had have asked me in 1995, yeah. oh yeah, I would have definitely said that I was still making t- shoes in 2011. Like it was my career and my commitment. And um, I mean, there's definitely things that I'd like to do that we haven't done. And there's like what? Well, I'd like to. I'd like to be able to. Um, I'm constantly looking for how we can make the shoes better. And um yeah, so there's so there's elements of um make that I would still like to be able to incorporate into our shoes. So I'd really like to be able to actually put out a Goodyear welted shoe. Mm. Um and that's, you know, like finding the right people to work with on that. Um and that sort of opens up a lot of doorways in terms of other design projects that you can do and other things that you can do with shoes. The other thing I was going to ask you, being part of collections and being part of exhibitions at major museums yeah. and galleries, what does that do to a, a name like Preston's Lie? Well, I mean, it's just, I think, it, I suppose it gives you validity in a different area. Like, fashion's very, um, you know, everybody wants something that's um, quick and fast and it's got to be new and it's got to be young. And um, I think that um, being in collections like that gives a sort of, I suppose it proves to us that what we do, even though the market and the audience is quite small in the, in terms of the mainstream, it actually really sort of sends a message to us that what we do is important, mm. which I think we feel that it is in the scheme of you know, fashion. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, not cu- curing cancer, but I, I, but I feel like, I feel like what we're doing is sort of important. I would have to agree, Joanna. I think what you're doing is very important, and um, I hope to see your shoes in 2050. <laughs> and I'm well into my, you know, I'll probably be dead by then. But uh, your hundreds well, uh, in my hundreds, <laughs> and I, you know, I just think your work is very significant. Oh, and, thank you. Um, I've been a big fan for many years. So thanks for coming in to speak to me today. It's my been pleasure. A pleasure. It's been great being in here. And thank you. Thanks, Joanna. <laughs>